0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Once again, we are in the Book of Hebrews. Join me, if you would, to the Book of Hebrews. This is now our third Sunday to introduce the uh, the book. Are we going to get into verse one yet? <laughs> All right. O oh, ye of little faith. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, and in many ways. If you think about that, that was a great start. But remember, a beginning is not perfection, is not completion. And speaking long ago to the fathers, those would be the Hebrew fathers, the Jews of the Old Testament, In the prophets, in many portions, in many ways, that was not perfect, that was not enough. In these last days, has spoken to us, to us, in his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, or literally the ages, and we'll discuss that. The same ages, the Ion, Ionos, that we have in Romans 12, we saw this morning, not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed and the applications there. So it's all about Christ. And it's all about everything in an Old Testament that was pointing to Christ. And then Christ Himself came. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. And we see this here, it says in verse 3, He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. So if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. And when the Word became flesh, we have the greatest revelation of all. And there was variety, there was any number of of, uh, shadows and types and messages and styles, formats. But then God Himself became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the impact of what we have here. And it carries throughout the whole book of Hebrews that Christ is the center of everything. So He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, why did he go back to heaven after the cross? You know, I mean, I get that he had to go to the cross. Okay, great. So why doesn't he say it is finished and then hop off that cross and conquer the world? Why not bring in the kingdom right then, right there? Why did he then physically die? give up His spirit and be buried and rise again from physical death? Why ascend to the Father's right hand? Why be seated at the Father's right hand? You see, there's a whole lot more that's at work. and The Bible describes a vast plan from Alpha to Omega, and it's bigger than humanity. It actually addresses the angelic realm first. Then it addresses humanity. And there's something that has to be reconciled with the angels We're going to spend two full chapters in Hebrews dealing with the angels. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than angels. He has inherited a more excellent name than they. So there's a purpose for His being seated at the Father's right hand. And it connects, not to us, it connects first of all with the angels. Then it connects to us when he operates as the apostle and high priest of our confession. All right. So we've got a lot of deep stuff in front of us. I want to open us up with a word of prayer, and then we can return to where we left off last week and uh, hopefully this morning conclude our introduction to the book. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, we're calling upon your faithfulness. The book of Hebrews is a deep study. And Father, it's one that I've wanted to teach going back to seminary days. And it's one that's taken 25 years and longer to teach. But here we are. And Father, uh, we're calling upon your faithfulness. Not that uh, that I'm worthy to teach it or any of us are worthy to learn it. But Father, your Holy Spirit is faithful. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. The faithfulness of your Holy Spirit, Father, opens the eyes of our understanding. And so we call upon that faithfulness this morning. Teach us from thy truth. Thank you for the hymn we sung. Breathe on me breath of God. That's, that's the Holy Spirit at work. Open our eyes and do your work. Feed us this morning, Father. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen all right so we've been dealing with some introductory concepts and i'll just run through here what we've seen so far we don't know who the author is for years i thought it was barnabas lately i'm thinking luke all right i've been presenting some of that material as well in the introduction but it is not stated unstated author unclear place of writing unidentified recipients and an uncertain date theories all abound i'm concluded presently that it was luke in 67 a.d from rome to an audience of believers, uh, Jewish believers, former priests that uh, that are operating in a largely Gentile church, probably in a place like Antioch or Cyrene or some other primarily Gentile church that a lot of priests fled to in uh, the early decades of, of Christianity. In, um, it's largely Pauline in its theology, but Paul didn't write it. Uh, clearly because the grammar is too classical, it's too polished, it's too Greek. Uh, When Paul wrote, nothing wrong with his Greek, but Paul's writing was filled with Hebraisms. It was filled with betrayals of his Hebrew past that uh, that he injected into anything he wrote. We got 13 examples that Paul wrote, and this is different from all of them. Alright? Some shades approach the pastoral epistles, but by and large, Hebrews was not written by the pen of Paul. A quote from William L. Lane, The language of Hebrews constitutes the finest Greek in the New Testament, far superior to the Pauline standard, both in vocabulary and sentence building. The best clues come in chapter 2. We talked about all of these. I'm going to skip through all this. Clearly, it was somebody in the Pauline circle because he said, Our brother, Timothy, has been released. But I pay so much attention to this detail here in chapter 2 and verse 3, that the author himself said he was not an apostle. That he included himself along with his audience as being second generation. Somebody who heard the message from the apostles, but not straight from Jesus. And as it says in 2 3 after it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So the author includes himself with his readers and says, We didn't hear it straight from the Lord. We. Heard it from those who did, from the apostles. And so that not only does that rule out the the Pauline authorship, but I had to finally face it and say, you know what, that also rules out the Barnabas authorship as well, because Barnabas was a legitimate apostle. And as a legitimate apostle, I can prove that three times over from the New Testament, as a legitimate apostle, he received his gospel straight from the Lord and not from not from those who heard. And the author here says he was second generation who received it from those who heard. Uh, Church history has likely, uh, has often assigned this to Paul, but every time it was always with some doubts. Uh, The number two candidate was Barnabas, and this goes back very early to Tertullian, who uh, insisted that it was Barnabas, and that's been my theory for most of my ministry. Not commonly suggested, but the most likely candidate, at least in my mind, is Luke. And if it's not Luke, then it was likely somebody we have no idea. Somebody totally anonymous to the record of the New Testament. People want to just take guesses at Apollos and guesses at other people. Um, In any event. The linguistic similarities with Luke and Acts caused many church fathers to credit Luke. Even when they were trying to claim Paul was the writer, they said Luke helped him. (laughs) That Luke took Paul's writings from, from Hebrew original, translated into Greek, and gave us this classical Greek presentation in the book of Hebrews. By the way, there's a marvelous book by David Allen, called The Lucan Authorship of Hebrews. And I recommend it. It's very recent, very new. Uh, just came out in the last couple of years, and it's, uh, it's a marvelous text. Not only is the author unknown, the recipients are unknown. The uh, prescript was added in later manuscripts, pros hebraeus, to the Hebrews. All right. Most likely not a part of the original manuscript, although I struggle to find Well, which ones do we know about that didn't have it attached to it. All the ones we know about have, even going back to Papyri 46. Papyri 46 has pros hebraeus as the heading for this book, to the Hebrews. And there's no question that the recipients are priests. I mean everything chapter by chapter by chapter so stresses the priesthood and, and stresses it from the standpoint that they already know all this stuff right? Using a background that they had in common. The author says, you guys know all this. And he presents the the tabernacle and the temple and the animal sacrifices and everything in the Old Testament that's given is given to an audience that he assumes already knows it, but they've not yet understood how it now connects to where we are today. And that's the dominant theme. And that's what I'm going to be hitting you guys with again and again and again in the coming weeks. We do know from Acts 6-7 that there were a large number of priests that were becoming New Testament believers and entering into the church. And it's mentioned once, one verse in Acts chapter 6. And it's the only time it's mentioned. And we never see them again for the rest of Acts. You would think that something that momentous would be commented upon again if they were heavily involved in something which they clearly were not. That they got saved or they crossed into the church age and then they scattered. Where did they go after that? Say, well, if this is the audience here in the book of Hebrews, we understand that they left Jerusalem. They went to a locality with a dominant Gentile church. They plugged in, formed a little clique, a little group within that church, and then they largely struggled. They largely struggled to wrestle with what they lost when they entered into the church. All right? And many of them are tempted to go back that the temptation is to revert back to Judaism, or geographically to revert back and go defend the temple against those Romans. All right, to, uh, When the call goes out to defend the temple, you better believe that pulls on the heartstrings of every, every priest that's, that's, uh, that's hearing that. And so uh, there's much to be said, I think, of that group there in Acts 6-7 that we don't see again for the rest of the New Testament. All right, last week I gave you some dominant themes, and I hope you've been chewing on them. I've had some discussions with several folks that appreciated those and uh, had a couple of extra additions they might want to throw in there as well. And I appreciate that also. Um, Again and again and again you're going to see the word more, either better, greater, or more. The concept comes out again and again and again. What we have is better than they ever had. And what they had was better than any Gentile ever had. Alright? Israel had, was given the most that any human stewardship has ever had and we've been given more than them. That's huge. Alright? So better than the angels, more glory than Moses, better things concerning you. What could be better than being saved? But Paul says, I'm convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. Alright? And we'll deal with that in chapter 6. A better hope, better covenant. Why is the new covenant better than the Mosaic covenant? Well, duh, because it's unconditional instead of conditional. And uh, we can't break the new covenant the way that Israel broke the old, the Mosaic covenant. All right? And the old Mosaic covenant was conditional and full of wrath and judgment. Of course, it's a better covenant. Enacted on better promises. Confirmed by a better sacrifice. We have a better possession. If, if this world seizes your property, oh, well. We have a better possession and an abiding one. This world is not our home anyway in, uh, in those applications. Uh, a better sacrifice than Cain. Abel brought a better sacrifice than Cain. We'll study that in chapter 11. Why was that? Because it was an animal sacrifice, the shedding of blood instead of a vegetable sacrifice of human effort. It was by faith that, Cain, that Abel brought a better sacrifice than Cain. Anything by faith is better than something in the flesh a better country, a better resurrection. Uh, the author says he's convinced of something better for us in 1140. And then the blood of Christ that speaks better than the blood of Abel. You know, the blood of Abel cried out from the ground, and when the Lord was walking in the, in the, on the earth, that blood of Abel was crying out from the ground, and, and, and the Lord was paying attention to that. But there's now something crying out, not just from the ground, but crying out throughout the universe, and that's the blood of Christ that was shed at Calvary. And it speaks, it speaks today, it continues to speak, it's going to speak for all eternity. We need no other argument, we need no other plea. (laughs) Right? I was saying that last week. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. That tells the story right there. So the dominant theme of better, greater, more. Dominant theme of Sabbath rest. And it comes in early, chapters 3 and 4, and I think if we get a handle on it there then we do ourselves a huge favor for everything else that follows. But uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4 we're going to get again and again and again, Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath. What is this rest that we're supposed to enter into? Are we going to argue about Friday, Saturday worship versus Sunday worship? You know why why, why? why do we come together on Sunday morning and the Seventh-day Adventists come together on Saturday morning and how does that work? It's not about Saturday or Sunday. It's about today. Day after day as long as it is called today. And so we enter into that rest. That's what we're designed for. And if we don't have a handle on the Old Testament, then we better get a handle on it pretty quickly because that all painted a picture for our application today. Why did he bring them through the Red Sea? Why did the waters come crashing down behind them? Why did nobody ever go back to Egypt after they were brought out of bondage? See? Because our redemption is a one way ticket. You don't lose salvation, there's no going back. All right? So now we're redeemed people in a wilderness. Now what's the Father want us to do? He wants to bring us through that wilderness and He wants to bring us to a place of rest, right? The land flowing with milk and honey, the land of blessing, the land of promise, the land of rest. And that's the point. So you and I, we want to be believers, not in a wilderness, but believers in a place of rest. And we should be in that place of rest today. And day after day, as long as it is called today. We should never leave that rest. Sadly though, most believers, Christendom by and large is still in the wilderness. Christendom by and large uh, does not understand the mental attitude Sabbath that we're provided in Christ. And uh, the blessings we have to be occupied with Christ all, Christ all day, every day. So we'll deal with that principle as well. It's a dominant theme in chapters 3 and 4. Uh, the priesthood and the sacrifices, oh my goodness, for everything from chapter 4 to chapter 10 and then a little bit more in chapter 13. The, the, the bulk of the book is about priesthoods and sacrifices from 4.14 to 10.31 about priesthoods and sacrifices. Sometimes it's the Aaronic priesthood that's in view uh, you know, in Aaron that is the Levitical priesthood or sometimes it's the Melchizedek priesthood that's being spoken of or sometimes it's Jesus Christ and His priesthood. What did He do? Why did He not, when the, when the veil was rent in two, He never went in there, didn't have to. Why not? Where did, he, where did He go? Where did He go with blood that, that He accomplished on, on that marvelous day? What did He do in heaven when He ascended to heaven? We'll be dealing with that. Because that priesthood that, cre- that Christ exercised applies to us. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. So if we want to make the right applications, we've got to line up as priests in Christ. And that we uh, follow the pattern that's set there. We don't want to get Levitical. (laughs) The last thing you and I want to do is get Levitical. It's not about ritual. It's about reality. And that's, uh, that's huge for each one of us. And so this theme is so overwhelming, it provides the rationale for the book's title and the undoubted priestly background for both the author and the recipients. By the way, this is why Luke was always discounted. Because uh, there was another legend and tradition that said that Luke was a Gentile, he was Titus's brother, he grew up in Antioch, and uh, as a Gentile he, there's no way he could possibly be the author of Hebrews. Well, says who? How reliable is the tradition that he was the brother of Titus? We know Titus was a Gentile, but how, how reliable is the tradition that Luke was his brother and that Luke is a Gentile? And, uh, and so forth. And, and once you dispel the myth that he has to be a Gentile? And once you start to ask, well could he be a Jew? Then when you look at Luke and you look at Acts, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, he's very Jewish, he's probably a priest himself. And then now is not only is he eligible to write uh, Hebrews, he's probably the leading candidate of all of our speculations to, to write the book of Hebrews. Turn, uh, join me in chapter 13 and I'll just see we're covering a lot of good ground this morning, right? We made it all the way to chapter 13. Let me give you a a, a teaser for where we're going. Because we have sacrifices. We have sacrifices. And I love this. In verse 7 it says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. And uh, the blessings we have to stand on the shoulders of giants and to follow in the footsteps of those that have gone before but Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's a hymn that comes out of the book of Hebrews, right? And, uh, and so He was faithful to our parents. He's going to be faithful in our generation. We're going to accomplish the purpose of God in our generation. Exercising our priesthood. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. And uh, the varied and strange teachings is anything that's not grace. <laughs> okay? Legalism. Ritual. Varied and strange. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. You want to go back to Leviticus? You want to have clean versus unclean animals? No. Not only the fact that I like bacon, but beyond that, I like grace. I want the grace of God to be living in the church age, to be living in the reality, not the symbols. It's not the food that commends us. It's grace. See, those... uh, through which those uh, who were so occupied were not benefited every levitical priest every old testament priest that that abstained pork his entire life was there a spiritual benefit to that we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat Well, we have as far beyond anything levitical anything jewish in their stewardship not saying that they were wrong for what they were doing they were right for what they were doing but it's obsolete and ready to disappear. We'll see that in uh, these chapters. So, we have an altar. We have an altar. How about that? It's not this little table up front, okay? We have an altar. And we better be busy serving. We better be about our Father's business. We have a, a priesthood to fulfill. Our priestly function demands that we get busy at that altar. And you'll notice um, Jesus set us that example. Um, verse 12, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. You know, why did they do that? Why did they have the, 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 the scapegoat? Why did they take him outside the camp? Why did they shed the blood outside the camp? W- was there a reason for all that ritual? Of course there was. Foreshadowing Christ and then teaching us. So let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. That's going to take some humility. That's going to take a willingness to go outside the camp. All right. Verse 15, "...through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice." You know, they they weren't supposed to let the fire go out on their altar. Why was that? It's painting a picture for us today. Do we ever stop worshiping? Do Do we ever stop sacrificing? Do we ever stop our priesthood? No, we're not supposed to. Continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. Those are our sacrifices right there. Praise God. It's a sacrifice. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. The sharing there, by the way, is the fellowship, koinonia fellowship of one believer to another. And it might be tangible, it might be intangible, it might be financial, it might be food, it might be fellowship, it might be doctrine. All of the above, okay? Because we're one body in Christ. And as we do that, we're ministering at this altar that a Levitical priest has no concept of. So, priesthood and sacrifices. There are repeated warnings, including five primary warnings, and some of them sound very dire. Some of them scare a lot of people it sparks arguments between calvinists and arminians and since we're neither we're we're good to go <laughs> okay we can teach the warning passages appropriately as the author intended them we can teach the warning passages in the context of a priesthood not in the context of of um salvation or losing salvation salvation's a given we are in christ that's what gives us our priesthood okay The warning is not about that. It's it's the warning within the priesthood of falling short, and we'll talk about that. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5 carries over into chapter 6, the scariest part, and then uh, chapter 10 and chapter 12, the five dominant warning passages in Hebrews. Here's my fifth and final theme. In fact, if I write a book on Hebrews, this is what I'm going to talk about. The dominant theme of Hebrews is how to apply the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament mean to a New Testament believer? Do we just throw it away? Is it abrogated? Do we say, well, throw it out, it's replaced now. Now we have a New Testament that replaces the Old Testament. No. See, Muhammad tried that. (laughs) He said, hey, here's a Quran. Throw away your Old Testament. Throw away your New Testament. Here's a new, latest, and greatest. Okay? And then there's the Muslim doctrine of abrogation, uh, just go with what the Quran says and forget anything else. Joseph Smith did the same thing. Mormonism says the same thing. Oh, by the way, here's a book of Mormon. This is now the latest and greatest. Throw away your Old Testament, throw away your New Testament. Okay. But when God gave us a New Testament, He didn't tell us to throw away the Old Testament. He included Hebrews in the New Testament so that we would properly orient to how does a New Testament believer apply the Old Testament What is now the reality for you and I in Christ? And so, uh, to me, the book of Hebrews is about applying the Old Testament in light of three things. In light of the finished work of Christ on the cross. And everybody gets that. Okay, Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. So in light of the finished work of Christ on the cross, how do I apply the Old Testament today? But also, in light of the present work of Christ in heaven. Sometimes that one gets missed. In light of the present work of Christ in heaven, how do I apply the Old Testament today? If he's seated at the right hand of the Father, what do I do? And how does his session, how does his role as the apostle and high priest of our confession, how does that then define what I do in the church age? Well, right away I realized, wait a minute, this is a lampstand that Jesus Christ walks in the midst of this lampstand. He holds the star in His right hand. That Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and that's a real title with a real meaning. It's not just an empty title that's on a door that doesn't mean anything. Okay? Head of the church means something. You ever worked for a boss and had a big fancy title and he had a sign on the door and had a big nameplate on the desk and it was a really impressive sounding title? You know? And then you got to thinking, what does that even mean? What does he do? And then after a while you start to get suspicious and say, I don't think it means anything. (laughs) I don't think he does anything. I'm not sure why that guy's even here. Okay? And I think it's pretty common in a lot of workplaces. Sadly, though, head of the church, I think too many Christians, they accept that as a title, but they don't put any meaning to it. They, they accept that as a title, okay, he's the head, yeah, Jesus, you're the boss, but they just have him hands off, away, gone, not involved, seated in heaven, and totally absent from what we're doing right here, right now, and that's not right. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. He is actively engaged right here, right now. He walks in the midst of this lampstand, right here, right now, and we're working because he's working even as he was working because his father was working. We're going to deal with that. In light of his finished work, in light of his present work, seated at the right hand, Father, our advocate, interceding on our behalf, he ever liveth to make intercession for the saints. You think that's a big deal? The author of Hebrews thinks it's a big deal. Okay? That's why we're saved to the uttermost. There's another hymn that comes out of the book of Hebrews. Saved to the uttermost. All right? Um... Then thirdly, in light of the future work of Jesus Christ when He comes again. The future work of Jesus Christ when He comes again. And this one, if if the middle one gets overlooked a lot, this last one I think gets overlooked all the time. That much of Hebrews is written to a Jewish priestly audience with the expectation that the coming Christ is going to reinstitute sacrifices in the millennium. okay, And there will be sacrifices in the millennium. Animal sacrifices in the millennium. That what is growing old and obsolete is ready to disappear and it will disappear at the second advent of Jesus Christ. Because see I think Hebrews is what's going to sustain the 144,000. The Jewish evangelists in the tribulation. All believers in the tribulation are going to look to the book of Hebrews for their guidance. That the imminent return of Jesus Christ at Armageddon, the imminent return of Christ at His second advent has bearing on what they apply in the tribulation. Okay? And that maybe doesn't necessarily jazz us today in the church age because we're not going to go through tribulation, but still I think it's vital that we understand that's why it was put in the canon. That's why it's in Hebrews. Hebrews. That's why Jesus gave warning passages for believers in the tribulation to apply when it gets to them. The author of Hebrews likewise puts warning passages in Hebrews for tribulational saints to apply when it gets to them. And so we can appropriately earmark that as having a tribulational aspect and then we can relax. It says, you know, we're not going to face that in our stewardship. You and I don't have to face Antichrist in the church age so we can relax about certain warnings that are not designed for us. Okay, Do you ever get worked up about the warnings were given to Noah? <laughs> Does that ever bother you about the things Noah was told about, the warnings he was given? Do you ever think, you know, I probably should build a boat? <laughs> yeah, I should start organizing animals two by two? No, you don't do that, I don't do that. It's nonsensical to do that. Never once, I have not lost any sleep over any warning ever given to Noah. Okay? What am I illustrating? Why do so many believers lose sleep over warnings given to tribulational believers? We're not going through the tribulation. I'm not going to fear Antichrist. I'm not going to fear hell on earth. I'm not going to fear the opening of the abyss and the flooding of 200 million demons. I don't sweat any of that. Because we've been delivered from the wrath to come. All right? All right. And we're going to be clear on that as well. And some of that applies. And if you don't, if you don't target that third item there, in light of the work, future work of Jesus Christ when he comes again, I think if you fail to recognize that the author of Hebrews is addressing some of those themes, then you get more worked up than you ought to be over some of the warnings that, that follow. So stay tuned. I think we'll, uh, we'll do well with that. Now, so in applying the Old Testament, what does he do? He quotes the Old Testament. He quotes a lot of the Old Testament. I scared you with this last week and I don't think I left it up there long enough to really scare you with what we have to look at here this morning. Because the author of the book of Hebrews was an Old Testament genius. He didn't always have the right addresses. (laughs) You know, he said somewhere concerning something, you know, but boy did he know his Old Testament. And All of the the main sources, the bulk of Hebrews is the book of Psalms. How many times does Psalm 2 get quoted in Hebrews? How many times does Psalm 8 get quoted in Hebrews? How many times does Psalm 22 get quoted in Hebrews? And by the way, that's a lot of... You know what those are? Those aren't verses. Those are chapters. Those are whole chapters that have themes that are injected into the book of Hebrews. And so Psalms is the number, one, uh, the number one item. After that is the law, all five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Comprehensively, five books of Moses. Is it coincidental? Five warning passages to the Hebrew uh, recipients. Five books of Psalms. Um, and then when he does get to the prophets, it's Isaiah and Jeremiah, okay? New covenant, new heavens, new earth. The same thing you and I are looking forward to, right? According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, you might have heard that before. It's it's important. Now, how in the world are we going to read all that? What are we going to do? Well, I'm going to tease you with something here. And by the way, <clears throat> if you like this kind of stuff, um, we've been doing some of it on Sunday nights at 7.30 in the study hall hour. Uh, I, I, I t- made the announcement this morning, I'm going to start doing more of this at the 6 o'clock hour as well, right here in this room on the projector, teaching uh, the different folks that use the Logos Bible software, teaching how to use some of the different utilities, to use some of the different tools, so that you can go home and use those same tools yourself. And then, uh, then you, you lock yourself in a room, and I won't see you for a week at a time, because it's, it's once, you, once you start learning how to use these tools, you just start chasing rabbit trails, and you start really getting into the Word of God, it's a powerful thing. So I want to share with you here a a utility that can be found. And um, I'm going to fly it out here so you can see in a better, I'm going to maximize it. And then I'm going to enlarge the text because I have some back row commandos that like to I'm not sure why it is that the uh, the uh, Oldest person in the room insists on sitting on the back row. (laughs) Okay, not true. Actually, not true. (laughs) Mostly on the back row. Not against the wall. Anyway, it happens. So we make larger text moving forward. If um, you want to learn how to do this yourself, you come up here to Tools. Tools. So you've got documents, guide, and tools as on your menu. <clears throat> and then tools, you've got four columns. Library, reference, passage, and interactive media. Come over here to the right-hand column, the interactive media. And come down, you've got miracles of the Bible, that's kind of cool. Spend a couple hours there. Go to the names of God, spend a week there. But then come down here to your third interactive media. This is called the New Testament use of the Old Testament. The New Testament use of the Old Testament. And this, by the way, is a critical, critical study. It keeps us from going off the rails. It defines for us how we handle the Scripture. It gives us our, our hermeneutic. How do, why do we interpret the Scripture the way that we do? Because that's how Jesus interpreted it. When, when He was walking this earth and when He was teaching Bible class, what was He doing? He was interpreting Scripture. And so how, he, how did he handle, well, we today we call it the Old Testament, he just called it the Bible, okay? When he would handle the Scripture and he said, thus saith the Lord, and when he cites Isaiah, or when he cites an Old Testament book, Jesus gives us our pattern. And we handle Scripture literally because Jesus did. Paul used the same literal hermeneutic, Peter, John, James, Luke, every New Testament author handled the Old Testament with a literal hermeneutic. So do we. It's the only way to be fair to a text. Anyway, so this this utility is useful and when you select it then you're going to get something like this. Okay? <clears throat> and we'll have some fun with this. At least until I, my, my clue will be when Molly comes back in from her class and I'll know that it's time to wrap up and sing. But <clears throat> we're going to have some fun with this here this morning. All right? When you first open it up, you've got, there's a left-hand pane here and a right-hand pane here, okay? And it's not, maybe there's a line there that's probably not visible from back row, but there's a left pane and a right pane, okay? And the right pane is going to constantly change depending on what you select as options on the left-hand side. Uh, There's also a couple of options you can uh, can select on this right-hand side. This is simply a sorting device here. And I'll show you what we're doing. But right now when you first open it up you're looking at 2,572 uses of the Old Testament in the New Testament. That's a lot. Okay? I mean we're only talking 33,000 verses anyway from Genesis to Revelation. But in the New Testament there were 2,572 uses of the Old Testament. Okay? From Matthew 1.1 to Revelation 21. Now, we can start to trim this down because we recognize they're not all direct quotations. Sometimes they're citations. Or sometimes they're just echoes. Or sometimes they're simply allusions. Right? Allusions. A-L-L. Not illusions. A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N. So sometimes there's an allusion that's being made. Okay? For example, he'll make an allusion to the tabernacle. And he doesn't cite an exact verse, but as an allusion to the tabernacle or as an allusion to the scapegoat or an allusion to Day of Atonement, then that points back, and it points back to the Old Testament, to a chapter, to a verse, to a concept. All right, so there's a ton of those. Now, so we can, uh, we can uh, narrow it down by that. We can also narrow it down by book. Okay? And, and in right now, I'm just showing you how to use the tool. You'll have fun with this on your, on your own. But right now I have it selected by count instead of uh, in, sequ- in the sequence, the A to Z order, all right, or in the biblical order. That's why it's Revelation, Acts, Matthew, Luke, Hebrews, Romans, John, 1 Corinthians. When I'm looking at the New Testament book there. Because Revelation has 590 uses of the Old Testament. That's the most. Acts has 284 uses of the Old Testament. Matthew has 261. Luke has 253. Hebrews has 229 usages of the Old Testament. That puts it in the order. If you you insist on uh, clicking there, now you have your New Testament order, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and you can take it like that. Alright? I prefer to leave it on count. Do it either way, whatever you like to study. So, Those are the books that make the most use of the Old Testament. Revelation, Acts, Matthew, Luke, and then Hebrews. Interestingly enough, Acts, Luke, and Hebrews are all up there very heavy in Old Testament usage. Notice that? And they all outdo Paul. All right. Also, looking at the book's source, again, sorted by count, Isaiah has 412 more than any other Old Testament book, there are 412 uses of Isaiah in the New Testament. That's a lot. Even more than Psalms. Psalms, you think, would have the most. I mean, there's 150 Psalms, right? Well, it comes second. Psalms has 404 usages in uh, the New Testament. Exodus has 230. Genesis 228. That's how that works, okay? There's other utilities here as well, like who's the speaker? Well, Jesus was the speaker 514 times of all the uh, Old Testament usages in the uh, New Testament. Um, Speaker in the New Testament, speaker in the source. There's other ways you can sort this. So here's what I'm going to do. Who's being addressed? What are the literary types? Who are the people being mentioned? The places being mentioned? Things being mentioned? Okay? Okay. If you just want to limit it to the topic of blood, there's the topic of blood. Select that. See, the thing is, anytime you select something, what's going to happen is your right-hand pain is going to change. And now you're looking at only those 90 uses where blood is the thing spoken of from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Okay. Now, I don't want to look at blood this morning, so I'm going to cross that off. And we'll rebuild the right pain again. We'll go back to, to that. What I do want to do with you this morning, because this is a faster way of doing it, is we're going to look at Hebrews. So I click on Hebrews, and there we have it. I've got 229 uses of the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. Okay? And I can sort it either way. Right now it's sorted up here. It's sorted in the New Testament order. So starting in Hebrews 1, 2, and going all the way to in the end, Hebrews 13, we have all of the Old Testament citations, quotations, allusions, and echoes. And so in these last days, <clears throat> has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Well, we have an echo or an allusion to something that was spoken of in Psalm 2, 8. Ask of me, I shall give thee uh, the the heathen for thine inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. That's King James. Why why is that King James? All right. So there's the allusion there from Psalm 2.8. And this is how it works, all right? Now you can sort it in the Hebrew's order. You can sort it by source. So it rebuilds the right-hand pane. And now we're starting with Genesis 1.1. And we're going all the way through the end of the Old Testament. And we're finding the spots where they are found in the book of Hebrews. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. <clears throat> Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the worlds, the ages were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. So clearly when we're teaching Ephesians, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and we're talking about Jesus Christ as the creator, that's an allusion back to Genesis 1 1, or an echo back to Genesis 1 1. That Jesus is the creator of everything that is. And so, uh, Genesis 2 2. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. All right, got that. Genesis 2 2. Does that ever come up in the book of Hebrews? Oh, yeah. In fact right there in Hebrews 4.4. 4. He has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his work. See? If the author of Hebrews would have had Logos Bible software, and then he would have known <laughs> that it was Genesis 2.2. 2. See? And I suspect he knew that. and He didn't care to cite it exactly. Right? Who doesn't know Genesis 2.2? All right. And that's not the only place, because look at verse... 10 of chapter 4 another allusion to genesis 2:2 2, 2. the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as god did from his we have to rest in the mode that god rested in the same way that god rested we rest how's that how did god rest he rested in a satisfaction looking back at all that he had done that it was very good how do we rest the same way God rested. Okay? Genesis 3, 17 and 18. Here's the curse. And uh, God is judging Adam, and then Hebrews 6, 8 re- alludes to this, says, if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, it ends up being burned. Okay? Genesis 4. Here's Cain murdering Abel. Here's the sacrifice. Genesis 4, verses 3 through 10, it's spoken of in Hebrews 11. A lot of this is Hebrews 11, right? It's the hall of fame of faith. You got example after example after example of Old Testament hero and how they walked by faith. And, And really, chapter 11 ought to be the great sigh of relief to anyone, anyone receiving the book of Hebrews, anyone studying the book of Hebrews, because it all comes down to our walk of faith. And we can go, oh, it's always been by faith. Old Testament believers walked by faith, Jews, Gentiles, it's always been about faith. And so even with all the fulfilled work in Christ, even with all the New Testament, even with all the the great spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, everything we've been given in the church age, it still comes down to, are we walking by faith? Do we walk by faith or do we walk by sight? Did we begin by the Spirit and we're then being perfected in the flesh? Or what are we doing? Is it by faith? See? And so chapter 11 is a great sigh of relief. It's all by faith. And then in chapter 12 is the example of Jesus. How did He survive the cross? By faith. That's right. For the joy set before Him endured the cross, despised the shame, and was seated at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus Christ did that by faith. And we can do anything He expects us to do by faith. So, we have the example there. Let me just limit it here this morning to the Psalms. Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Wow. Okay. That's a significant verse. Today I have begotten you. This is the father speaking to the son. When was his birthday? Christmas? <laughs> do we bake a cake, blow out candles, eat ice cream? What do we do? Jesus, the father says, today I have begotten you. And he makes a huge emphasis on today. Okay. We teach this from Proverbs 8. We teach this from other passages. This is the alpha moment. This is the boundary between eternity past and time. This is the very first day there ever was a day. Today, I have begotten. Okay? Other things that we can teach on that. But notice, it comes up in chapter 1 and verse 5. It comes back in chapter 5 and verse 5. It's used twice. And then verse 8 is also used in chapter 1. Psalm 2 8. Ask of me, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth as your possession. Everything. You know, the millennium is pretty finite. When Jesus sits on the throne of David, he is ruling as the son of David on the throne of David. He is king in Jerusalem. But Israel has boundaries, right? The Tigris and, or the Euphrates and the Nile. And on the other side of those boundaries are what? Gentiles, other nations, other kings. And some of those kings will come and worship and some of those kings will not come and worship. Some of those kings will rebel. There'll be conflict. There's going to be sin in the millennium. And Jesus did not rule to the ends of the earth. He rules to the boundaries of the throne of David. But in Psalm 2.8, the Father says, Ask of me. And I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth as your possession. The millennium is just a day job. It is a temp position. It is only a thousand years. Okay? And it's finite in its geographical boundaries. He's ruling on the throne of David with some rebellious Gentiles on the other side of those boundaries. And the father says, ask of me, I will give you those lands as well. The ends of the earth is your possession. Which is why at the end of the millennium everything is destroyed by fire and new heavens and a new earth are created. And when Jesus rules on the new earth, guess what? He gets it all. He's the heir of all things. You can think of it this way. In the millennium He sits on the throne of David and He rules as the son of David. In the fullness of time he's, He rules as the son of man. He has dominion over all humanity. The ends of the earth is His possession. Okay? doesn't stop ruling on the throne of David. That's eternal. Never stops. But he gets more. He's the heir of all things. And we're in him. You know? If you're going to get an inheritance and you're the younger brother, is that kind of a bummer? Okay? You know, David was the seventh son. I mean, goodness, what's left over for him? Especially when the firstborn gets a double portion. And if, and if your dad was a little bit more modest or if he was flat broke, you know, What's the younger kid going to get? Now, if the firstborn gets everything, what does that leave left over? If the firstborn gets everything, ah, but wait a minute, we're in him. We are the firstborn because we're in Christ. We are fellow heirs. You know that? Fellow heirs with the heir of all things. That's pretty cool. (laughs) I want to be fellow heirs with the heir of all things. Oh, guess what? I am. So are you. That's our position in the church age. There's never been anything like it, and there never will be again. A bride of Christ, the body and bride of Christ, fellow heirs with the heir of all things. Hebrews is going to teach us this. Psalm 8, 4, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You know, humanity is such a pathetic thing. We're just dust creatures. We're here for 80 years, maybe. A hundred if we're lucky. Probably not. Um, You know, we're just here for a brief moment. A tenth of a day. Okay? We're just here for a tiny little thing. We're dust creatures. We have to eat. We get sick. Uh, Things break. We get old. We wrinkle. Okay? And, 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 And can you imagine to a light being of glory like an angel how disgusting we are? Or to a light being like God? Okay? Think about it. You know? You, any, you ever have any sympathy for any cockroaches you stomp on? I mean, yuck. Because the human realm is so much more exalted than the cockroach realm, so we just stomp on them. Now think about the realm of light and us. Our, the mortal, temporary, fleeting, dust creatures. Our souls are clothed in a body of dust. How pathetic is that? But God said we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And so the psalmist, David, is asking here, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? You know what? You've made him a little while lower than God or a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and majesty. Verse 4 and verse 5, they come up again and again and again in Hebrews 2. Verse six, verse seven, verse nine, verse eight. Psalm eight has a big impact on the book of Hebrews. That it's humanity, not angelity, that fulfills the plan of God. You know one thing angels don't have. All right, yeah, they're glorious. Yeah, they fly. That's cool. They're uh, they're light beings. They're invisible. They're the heavenly host. One angel can kill one hundred eighty-seven thousand humans. Okay, that's cool. But you know what else? You know what they don't have? Sons. They don't procreate unless they're rebelling and creating Nephilim with human women. Um, Think about it. We're in the image of God and we get to portray the father-son dynamic. We get to portray the father-child dynamic. We get to portray not only Christ in the church in our marriages, but we get to portray father to son in our generations. Angels don't get to do that. And as we portray Father to Son in our generations, we get to glorify God the Father and God the Son in what we're doing. So it's a great privilege. Psalm 22, Jesus is on the cross. I will tell of your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. gets quoted in Hebrews 2. These things become significant. Prophetic of Christ on the cross, but the reality that we're able to apply... In the church age, because of that, is highlighted in the book of Hebrews. Psalm 33 6, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. Again, God is the creation, not only in the physical universe, but also the residence in the invisible realm and the visible realm, angelity and humanity alike. What was seen was not made out of things which are visible so psalm thirty three psalm thirty nine or psalm thirty three nine excuse me, he spoke and it was done, he commanded and it stood fast. I love that psalm thirty nine twelve hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my cry, do not be silent in my tears, for I'm a stranger with you, a sojourner, like all my fathers, And you know, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. Every Old Testament saint died in faith. Waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises? Psalm 40. Well, how much does Psalm 40 come into the book of Hebrews? Verse 6, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened, or a body you have prepared for me. A body you have prepared for me. The author of Hebrews says Jesus fulfilled this. Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. That's Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8. It comes up again and again in Hebrews 10. Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Hebrews 1, 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's all about Jesus. It's not the angels. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And we're in him. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Now, how can God have a God? (laughs) Ah, but see, it's God the Son and God the Father. And this is, uh, Jesus even used this with the Pharisees and said, well, how does David call him Lord if he's his son? Okay. And how does he say, God, your God? And this is the reality that we understand with the Father and the Son and the role of, of this and, and where we are in Christ. The oil of joy above your fellows. Guess what? We're the fellows. It's a beautiful thing. Gets quoted in Hebrews 1, nine. Psalm 50, the heavens declare His righteousness for God Himself is judge. That's uh, Hebrews 12.23. You have come to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven to, the, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. We're going to talk about that. Is, uh, Moses led Israel to Mount Sinai, wherever that was, and uh, angels surrounded that mountain in smoke and thunder and lightning and fear, death if they touched it. We come to a much better mountain, you and me. We come to the heavenly, and we're there right now. We've been there since the day you placed your faith in Christ a glorious thing. Psalm 68, the earth quaked, the heavens also dropped rain of the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked the presence of God. It gets quoted in Hebrews 12, 26. He says, you know what? Yet once more. You thought it quaked then? His voice shook the earth in, but now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heaven. He says, just Wait. Okay? Because we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken and it's on the way. We've got to understand Hebrews in the light of the imminent, present, coming kingdom. It's on the way. Psalm 91, He will give His angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. It's quoted in Hebrews one fourteen. Psalm 95, He is our God. We are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the days of Massa in the wilderness. Psalm 95, verse 7 and 8, it comes back again and again and again in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. Day after day, as long as it is called today. And what's interesting is all of those are quotes from David. <laughs> okay? So if it really grabbed the author of Hebrews big time to say, you know, let's apply this in the church, it actually grabbed David big time to say, hey, let's apply this now. David was exhorting his people in David's lifetime, 400 years after Moses, 500 years after Moses, saying let's not be like those guys. Let's not harden our hearts. Let's enter into rest. David understood the faith rest life because he wrote about it in Psalm 95. The author of Hebrews understood Sabbath rest and he gives it to us in Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4. So today, if you hear His voice, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years, I loathed that generation. See, God loves and God hates. God even loathes, and we don't want to be there. Says, "Take care that it not be in you, that evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, because we will. He will be angry with us, like He was angry with them." I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter my rest. But What does that mean? Does that mean he's going to revoke their salvation and send them back to bondage in Egypt? No. So what does the warning mean for us in the church age? Does it mean we're going to lose our salvation and go to hell when we die? No. It means we're going to perish in the wilderness and not attain the rest that we're designed for. We are a redeemed people that is designed for a place of rest. And we should be there today. It's not when we die and go to heaven. It's right here, right now, day after day, as long as it's called today. Psalm 95.11, Psalm 95.11, Psalm 95.11. He uses it three times in the book of Hebrews. Sure had an impact, huh? Psalm 97.7 Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols. Worship Him, all you God's. You know, these mighty angels, are called gods, okay? They are divine beings, they're not omnipotent, they're not the eternal god, but they're called gods, lowercase g, because they're the mightiest of all the angels. And yet they worship the same god we worship. And uh, it's quoted in Hebrews 1.6. Psalm 102 is quoted, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Quoted in Hebrews one. Even they will perish, but you endure. All of them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You'll change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Also quoted in Hebrews 1. You know, this universe is perishable and perishing. Right? That's why I'm not really all that worked up over global warming. Okay? Um, It's perishing anyway. Okay? Not a license to pollute, I'm just saying. We have stewardship over a creation that is perishing. It's the new heavens and new earth that we're looking forward to. He makes the winds as messengers flaming fire his ministers. That's Psalm 104 quoted in Hebrews 1.7. Isn't that great? You know when a hurricane hits, do you think that might be an angel? Since he makes his angels winds? Or if a fire sweeps through, do you think that might be An angel? You think all of these meteorological phenomena, how many of those are actually angelic phenomena? See, I don't think we have any way to know. The weather channel is not going to tell us. Okay? <laughs> and I don't think all of them are angelic. I think there is natural meteorological phenomena. There, we do have tornadoes. We do have hurricanes. We do have floods and earthquakes and fire. Those things happen in a fallen world. And in addition to all the natural ones that happen are some supernatural ones that happen too. All right, And so the angels are messengers, ministers. Then Psalm 110. I'm glad we got this far. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Oh, look at that. He quotes it again. 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 Man, that's five times just for verse one. And then he gets to verse four. The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110 in verse 4. And he quotes it again, 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 and he quotes it again. again. (laughs) I thought it was ridiculous that he quoted verse 1 five times, he quotes verse 4 six times. I think Psalm 110 made a big impression on the author of Hebrews. And the priest after the order of Melchizedek. You and I, that's our priesthood. We're in Christ. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. And so we need to learn about Melchizedek. And that's not easy. If you're hard of hearing, or if you're hard of heart, slow of hearing, (laughs) it's even worse. You can't handle that kind of doctrine. But you need to. We all need to. The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? We're going to wrap up here and sing our closing hymn in a moment. Um, yeah, the Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's Hebrews 13:6. We can confidently say, "The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me?" You know, that's just human, who cares? You know, all our testing is common to man. Big deal. Our resources are divine. If our testing is human, our resources are divine. Psalm 135 and verse 14, the Lord will judge His people. Guess what? Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people, Hebrews 10.30. Judgment begins with the house of God. You and I better get diligent about what we're doing because judgment begins with the house of God. All right. Thank you, Doug. Doug's handing out our song sheets. We're going to close with our closing hymn. Let me close with a word of prayer, though, and then we'll uh, finish passing these out and dismiss with our closing hymn. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for the book of Hebrews. And we're looking forward, Father, to seeing what's in store. Thank you for this introduction. We're ready to jump into verse 1 and start uh, man, start digging into it, Father. The, the meat, not the milk. Thank you for this book study, Father. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.